On today's episode of Complicated Conversations, we welcome Ashley Winstead. Ashley is the author of In My Dreams, I Hold a Knife, The Last Housewife, Fool Me Once, and The Boyfriend Candidate. Her books have been Library Read Picks, Lone Star Picks, Best of Amazon Picks, and Best of Apple Books Picks, and have received starred reviews from Publishers Weekly, Kirkus Reviews, Book Page, and Library Journal. She holds a PhD in contemporary American literature and lives in Houston. Her newest thriller, Midnight is the Darkest Hour, is out now. Hi. Hi. Welcome. (laughs) Welcome to Pop Fiction Women, Ashley. We were saying before this started that we are obsessed with you, but also with this book. We have so much we want to talk about. I just, I mean, this is going to, this is going to go deep. So give our, before we go deep though, give our listeners sort of just the elevator pitch for Midnight is the Darkest Hour. Midnight is the Darkest Hour opens with a skull being pulled out of a swamp in a very small coastal Louisiana town called Bottom Springs. And not only is this a small town, but this is firm Southern Baptist country. So the people in Bottom Springs all go to Holy Fire Baptist. Everyone is very morally upright and they haven't had violence or a homicide, God forbid, in decades um, or so they think. So pulling the skull out of the swamp, no one knows who it belongs to, or how it got there. And so the sheriff holds his first press conference and the whole town comes out to hear the details of this and everyone's buzzing. And the one lone person standing as she normally is in the background, watching all of this unfold, is our protagonist, Ruth Cornier. She is the preacher's daughter. She is a young woman, 23 years old, who has grown up being what she calls a wisp of a person, Mm, um, just kind of occupying the backgrounds. She understands that her job is to be seen but not heard. And so Ruth is the only person there standing in town square who knows exactly who the skull belongs to and how it got in the swamp because she believes that she put it there. So this kind of launches this journey because Ruth and her friend Everett, who comes back, her estranged friend Everett, who is as much an outcast as she is central to the town. They are the only two people who know about what happened, the Ruth's deepest, darkest secret that has now become unburied. And they devise this plan to commit just a few more small crimes (laughs) to (laughs) evade capture and punishment by the sheriff and the town and really redirect punishment towards people who they, they believe really deserve Mm it. So in, Basically, this is this is a Bonnie and Clyde sort of esque story. It's a story about the kind of slippery slope into into crime and darkness, but also about the tension between what's just and legal versus what's morally right and wrong. So I had a lot of fun playing with that. And yeah, they have Everett and Ruth have a pretty epic journey. Yes. Yes, they do. I was hooked. This book, it just sucks you right in like a swamp. I love that. So I want to start. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) I want to start, as we often do, with our female protagonist. And here it's Ruth. You've described her already perfectly, but I'd love to read a little bit. This is told in the then, so she's 17 years old. And we as the reader are on this journey with her to find out what happened back then, because we don't know, even though she does, as you said. 
So Ruth is a good, God-fearing girl, not a lick of trouble, raised by two upstanding, cane-wielding pillars of the community, but intensely shy to the point of muteness, a wisp of a girl, someone who haunts the background of photos, unlikely to look a boy in the eyes, let alone date one. And my gosh, right out of the gate, I feel like I know Ruth and I can see her and I see what's troubling her. And also knowing what a good writer you are, I know the journey she's going to go on. That she's going to start there, she's going to end up somewhere completely different. (laughs) Very different. Yeah. So tell us about Ruth, your inspiration for writing her or how you developed her in edits or any challenges you faced in writing her. Um, We'd love to hear a little more behind the scenes of Ruth. Yeah, I love that. So I feel like something I interestingly do with all of my books, especially my thrillers, because they tend to be more like projects of excavation for me, Mm. where I'm kind of going back into my own past and really taking like a little narrow slice of who I was at a certain period of time, doing a deep dive, like resurfacing the trauma, thinking about the issues that I was grappling with and kind of like creating a thriller out of out of those things. And so for Ruth, I looked back the farthest I've gone to date to my own 17-year-old self. And I actually pitched this book to my agent by saying, I want to write a thriller that feels like that really intense relationship that a lot of people have, especially a lot of young women, when they fall in love for the first time. And it's usually with a really terrible choice of a person, you know, like, you know, for in my case, a bad guy, kind of a little bit of a felon, and you know, just not someone my, my parents were happy about. And then you have this feeling where the first love is all-consuming, and you'll burn the world down in defense of this person, and whatever moral system you had going on before you met them is like replaced. And so I was like, I want to write a thriller that feels like that and takes readers back to that place of when that teenage intoxicating first love. Mm. And, you know, as an adult, I can look back and say like, wow, I made a lot of really, you know, like dumb banana (laughs) choices. But at the time, you're so convinced. And I wanted to convince my readers. I wanted them to be on the journey and just as convinced for my characters and, and supportive of my characters. So Ruth is like my super shy, anxious... 17-year-old self Mm. made manifest and kind of explored in the book. And I really, she's the softest character I've ever written. She's the shyest character I've ever written. And I feel really protective of her, which I think is healthy, given that I just, you know, said that I was like excavating (laughs) this former part of me. But yeah, she's a bookworm and is just someone who longs to escape. So Mm. she's kind of like girlhood and teenagerdom made manifest in a lot of ways. I I hope she looks really familiar to readers, feels familiar. Yeah, well, because there's so many aspects of her that can be relatable, whether you're shy, whether you're, you know, in a small town, Mm because she's also, there's just a claustrophobia to her life that could also make someone want to escape, even if they weren't shy. Or um, So there's so many points of relatability for her uh, I loved. Oh, thank her. you. Yeah, just that teenage feeling of like... Yeah, right. 
just yeah, the regular teenage exactly. rebellion. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to talk about that too. I love that. The aspect of the teenage girl in it, but you, you talked about this being sort of a, a love story or for you going back to, to young love. And to me, that yeah. was just, I mean, everything for me in this, the relationship between Ruth and Everett, I just thought you did such an incredible job with them. So I want to, I want to talk about the development of their relationship. And I, I'd also like to read a little bit again from 27. So we're still at the beginning when she sees Everett again, I study him feeling the weight of the secret. He won't tell me. I could try to keep my anger going. I could tell him how last summer I'd been so sad I stopped going to work, stopped reading, even stopped getting out of bed until my parents showed up to pray over my body, convinced something unholy was trapped in my head. I could try to make him suffer like he's made me, but the truth is my heart is a fickle betrayer. Despite everything, the fear and panic and stress, the simple sight of him makes happiness spill through me, slow and sweet as honey. Against all reason, a small part of me believes what he said, that with him here, somehow it will be okay. And you've already touched on it a little. I mean, then in the next page or two, they talk about sort of the promise they make to each other at 17. You know, promise me it'll be you and me forever. I'd promised the star is my witness. We would never give ourselves over, never let them win. It would be the two of us always safe in the secret world we created for ourselves. So they just have this like us against the world connection. And mixed, I know Corinne and I were saying with some forbidden love. I mean, just the whole yes, thing. Yes, because there's the, also the, there's the upside of being the pastor's daughter and the devil's son, mm. two a- outcasts who became friends the way we did from the start. Nothing has been off limits. Oh, I mean, it's so good. It's oh, so, thank you. yeah, you just want to dive in with them. Yeah. So talk to us about that, your, your creation of this relationship um, with yes. Ruth and Everett. I had the best time yeah. writing it's so the two evident. Of them. You just yeah. lit up. Yes. Yeah. I just really did. And yeah, just you you described it perfectly that us against the world. So Ruth and Everett are two people who like the preacher's daughter and the devil's son, really. They're they're really treated pretty differently or thought of differently. But in a lot of ways there's so much commonality between the two. Neither of them feel like they belong in Bottom Springs. They both feel overlooked. And truly, in a lot of ways, they both are victims of their parents' choices and and behaviors and survivors of a lot of kind of trauma, um, small daily trauma, and forever a little bit more kind of aggressive, violent trauma. And so they, when they find, they find each other in this very dramatic moment that I won't spoil for listeners, but it forges this, it's like they're, they're revealed to each other as potential friends. And really more than that, they become each other's lifelines. So as much as books for Ruth are a window into a wider world outside of Bottom Springs and, and like this repeated promise that there's more to the world and to life than this and what you're being taught. Everett is that too. You know, more he, they both love to read. He is a fan of poetry. I had a lot of fun playing with that. And all 
I don't know if we want to talk about the twilight of it all. Oh, um, we're going but, to. Oh, we, oh, we're we, going to go there. We okay. want to go yeah. there for sure. <laughs> yeah. Then yeah. I'll just say a, a little bit is that Ruth, you know, reads this band book called Twilight. At the tender age of 14, she finds it discarded in a giveaway box. And she fixates, as you would imagine, a 14-year-old girl, yeah. lonely girl would. Yes, yes. On... Bella as a kind of mirror and foil for herself and this like beautiful boy Edward who is a salvation figure in a lot of ways you know he gives Bella the love that she doesn't have and Ruth longs for this and in ways that she's not fully conscious of until she you know years pass and she does a lot of processing in the story Mm -hmm she has kind of fit Everett into this slot. Like Mm -hmm. she's kind of imagined him as her Edward figure for both good and bad. And we kind of explore like the the pros and the cons of making someone that kind of salvation for you, Mm, for yourself. So they're just, they're the most important people in each other's lives. Um, And it was really beautiful to write them. I just had a wonderful time. I loved the way you kept, yes, Ruth sees him one way, but he sees her that way too. They save each other over and over. You know, metaphorically, literally, they are really, uh, you know, equals in that way. Like almost like opposite sides of the same thing, but they need each other as much as as one needs the other. Yes. I love that. And I, that's like a a great journey that Ruth gets to go on is discovering the ways that she is, you know, Everett's effort to him, I guess, to say it in the most awkward way possible. (laughs) I want to talk about the timelines in this book because it flashes between now, which you described this opening chapter, a skull has been pulled out from the starry swamp and Ruth is kind of hanging back. And then we go back in time to her 17-year-old self, 17 to 19. And I love a good dual timeline. I'm not sure I have the chops to pull it off. So I'm very in awe of writers who can. And you really, this is exceptional mm-hmm. use of the dual timelines. I wonder if one of the reasons why I think yours works so well is because you don't seem wedded to like an arbitrary alternating one for one, mm-hmm. like now and then then, now and then then. Sometimes there's a then chapter followed by a then chapter, yep. a now chapter followed by a now chapter, because you let the story unfold as it needs to. Was that intentional? Tell us about your use of the dual timelines and how you keep that tension so taut through both throughout the whole story. Yeah, I love that. And that was actually really hard for me to let go of the idea of like, okay, one for one, and it's all going to be even. And Mm -hmm. I actually taught myself that lesson with my debut in my dreams, I hold a knife, because I I had plotted it out like, then now, then now, it's also a dual timeline. And I was just like staring at this puzzle of a plot that I could not make fit together. And thinking like, well, I don't have material, more material. Like the focus right now is on the present plot line. Like I, I want to continue to be there. And I remember thinking to myself, 
wait a second, you're in charge. Yeah, yeah like, I you, can there's be no, <laughs> There's no, like, you know, plot godmother or yes. team members, like, looking over your shoulder. You're in charge. Tell the story the way the story needs to be told. And I think there was also this really just everything I've ever learned I've just learned by voraciously devouring other people's work. So I'm, I'll give credit where credit's due. I was reading Red, White, and Royal Blue by Casey yeah. McQuiston. Yeah. And other than just being, you know, utterly delighted by the story, I was in awe from a craft perspective of the way Casey just nothing, there was no fluff. You moved completely from one, like she would jump from one chapter, to like the, the pertinent action in one to whatever was important in the next. And I just thought, oh, yeah, you really don't need there to be a transition or a bridge. Mm -hmm. Your reader will follow you. That doesn't create a confusion. And once that kind of sank in, I felt this enormous sense of freedom to just go where the story needed to go. And so I've been trying to see how far I can push it. Because in Midnight, in, in My Dreams I Hold a Knife, all the past kind of goes rather chronologically. Mm-hmm. Like you're 17, then 18. Mm-hmm. With Midnight, the past timeline jumps more or less like through yeah. like she's 18, then she's 22, then she's, you know, back to 19. And I thought, okay, let's see if readers will follow me. So I'm actually glad to hear that it yes. made sense and it worked because that's always like a little bit of a nervous, you're crossing your fingers, then it makes sense. And I just think like sign, I just invest a lot in signposting just to make sure readers are grounded from the beginning. So you know this is going to be summer, 19 years old. You're just going to get all of those kind of clarifying signals. And I also loved the idea of just going through, I think there's only one winter chapter in this book, Mm. where action that takes place in winter, everything Mm -hmm. else is just happening in these kind of various summers. So I loved that because I th- I hope that it gives that sense of like sweltering claustrophobia, like intensifies yeah. yes. and mm-hmm. what is more gnarly than a Louisiana swamp summer, right? Yeah. With that heat and that kind of inescapable atmosphere. Yeah. So, yeah. It, it just proves that when something's done well, the rules don't matter. I mean, I yes. would tell you that I don't, Corinne knows this, I'm not, often I'm not a fan of dual timelines because maybe... I'm not as interested in one timeline or another, or I don't like a lot of time markers. Don't make me figure out where are we now then. But you know, this was insanely good. I loved both timelines. I knew where I was at all times. And like you said, you've, if it's done well and you're, you're dropped into the action, I was following along. I was immersed. I was, I was in it. It does. So that you makes did me it. So happy. You Thank did goodness it. Also, because <laughs> I'm your challenge <laughs> case. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Man, the story was just unfolding yeah. as I wanted it to unfold. Like yeah. it didn't matter where in time I was. I wanted to know more about what happened. You know, X or Y. And then it was like, oh, here it is. Here it is. But I do. I love that you're giving credit because sometimes it does take a perspective mm-hmm. to go. Oh wait. Oh, I can do this, and it gives mm-hmm. you permission. And it just unlocks something. It does. Like, it's the yeah. best. That I, It's so funny. Everyone, when folks have asked me, like, what do you do when you're starting to feel a little bit of writer's block or being stimmied? And I'm just like, I just go to my peers. Read. Like my, Same. yeah, I just read as widely as I can. And every single time it just unlocks because I'll read someone do something really smart or interesting 
And it's not that I want to copy that, but it like unlocks something that I want to do. So yeah, that has just always been my go-to. Well, yes. let's let's go to a book that seems to have unlocked something or given some inspiration here. We got to talk yeah. about Twilight. I have never yes. in my life been more mad that I never read Twilight. Now I'm like, <laughs> I feel like I've missed out because of what you do here with this book. As you mentioned, Ruth has books as a, a way to escape, to to see that there's a, another life or world out there and Twilight is pivotal for her. And I want to, I could read your entire book out loud here, but we're just going to keep, we're going to keep going. But this is your, th- what Twilight was for Ruth. It was the ultimate contraband, a story both occult and romantic and meant for girls like me. In Bella, I found a mirror. We were both shy and overlooked with the smallest of lives hemmed in by circumstances outside our control. And in the vampire Edward, I found everything I'd ever wanted in a man. He loved Bella with a single-minded devotion, a self-effacing passion beyond anything a human man was capable of. That's in turn how I loved him. And then you say, Twilight was the bridge to my second rebellion, an obsession with the kind of love my father rarely talked about in church, the kind where you felt all the overwhelming awe you were supposed to feel for Jesus, but for another person. It fascinated me. So what is it about Twilight for you? <laughs> What's your relationship with yeah. it? And, and why why do you want to make it such an inspiration here? Yeah, no, I love that. And it's it actually that passage just reminded me of my one of my HarperCollins marketing associates who's working on promoting Midnight had the best one-liner. I just am so jealous that I didn't think of this way to describe the book. She said that Midnight is the Darkest Hour is the only thriller, at least this fall, that pits a metaphorical battle between Jesus and Edward Cullen. (laughs) And I just, I was like, oh man, yeah, why didn't I think of that? So I, it's so funny to me because I've had every kind of relationship you can have to Twilight. I was an early (laughs) reader of it. I'm a little bit too old to have been sucked into like full Twilight mania, though I suspect that if I was a few years younger, I probably would have been. But I was like one of those curious, avid readers, a little older teenager who was like, oh, what's this all about? Everyone's going uh, nuts over this and read it and read it quickly. And then I went on to be you know, like a PhD student in a hoity-toity, you know. This is drivel. Exactly. And had a wonderful time crapping on Twilight and tearing apart the writing, the prose, how insipid it was, how it just delivered so much wish fulfillment to Mm. young teenage girls and how it was just very mystifying why it had become like some, so many young women and men, of course, but for, for the most part, women, like complete obsession and personalities. And I will never forget the moment that I got slapped on the wrist so hard. We were out for beers after class, a bunch of us PhD students. And my best friend in the program had taught in an underserved community. I want to say like fifth, sixth and fifth and sixth graders, mostly and before coming into the program. And she listened to us for about 30 minutes, like a whole group of us be like, oh yeah, and Twilight, can you believe, like the best-selling book of however many years. And she patiently listened to us. And when there was a pause in the conversation, she was like, okay, look, none of you say whatever you want to say about Twilight, but 
the only way I got my students to read for the past five years mm -hmm. is by introducing them to Twilight. It turned them all into readers. Yeah. They fell in love with this book. I've never had a more engaged classroom. Mm. Like we, it, we got to talk about all of these issues because it was in Twilight. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, what a limited perspective I've had. And why not do this reparative reading of what this book is doing in the world, which is being like a source of passion for young women. And why is it exactly that I feel so comfortable punching down at young women and the things that they're interested in and obsessed with? And that really got me thinking about how often that happens and my own experiences growing up as a teenager. And I've, you know, I mentioned that this book is really me kind of like looking at girlhood and teenagerdom under a microscope and kind of trying to dissect it. My own experiences, I think there's a line in the book where Ruth says like, what is it about teenage girls? You know, we're like leered at, lunged at in one moment and then diminished and controlled and policed in the next. And it's like this mysterious power that teenage girls hold that I'm still trying to get to the bottom of that I think at some level people are afraid of, right? Yeah. And, and mystified by. And I wanted to celebrate that and take it to its largest and most monstrous extremes, mm -hmm. I guess, in Midnight is the Darkest Hour. But it is so funny to me. So I want to also just say that in this book, Twilight isn't just like, kind of presented as this wonderful inspirational text. Oh, yeah, I was going to say, yeah. yeah, it's, it is, there's challenges to twilight and challenges to young women's Ruth, specifically her fixation on this yes. idea of Edwards running in and being some sort of white knight figure who yes. saves her and is the, the outreached outstretched hand that pulls her finally out of this life she's trapped in. So there's a lot to critique about, really investing in that kind of narrative. But there's also, when I did a reread of the Twilight Saga before reading this book, because yeah. I wanted to make sure I was getting things right. Uh, when I did a reread, there's like a line in book three, I think, where it's, Bella has been turned into a vampire. So sorry, spoilers for anyone who hasn't gotten through the saga yet. <laughs> Even um, I know that. <laughs> yeah, okay, good. Um, no one will come for me. So Bella gets turned into a vampire, and there's this like gorgeous line Stephanie Myers wrote where she, Bella reflects like, I have been waiting. I've been a monster all these years, and I've been mm -hmm. waiting for like some sort of outward, you know, like manifestation to turn me into who I've always been. And mm -hmm. Edward was that for me. It's like my mm -hmm. path to being like the, the monster, the vampire I always have been. And I was like, whoa, wow. am I yeah. like reading? And so I just wanted to think really deeply in Midnight about why young women love so fiercely and passionately for Ruth, it's because no one's ever loved her that way. Yeah. So she is creating it for herself. And there's so much power in that. And I think that, you know, young women like bad boys. I liked my felon in, <laughs> in uh, I'll confess, yeah. to, in my teenage years because we recognize something in ourselves where we want to be taken more seriously. We want people to recognize our danger and our power and our potential. And we've been taught to like locate that in someone else. 
that society's like a little bit more okay with recognizing their power and, and potential. And we want that for ourselves. And so to me, that's just was a beautiful metaphor for vampirism. You know, mm-hmm. like that vampirism was a metaphor for like wanting to suck something out of someone else and have it for yourself. yourself. And so I knew that Twilight for that reason was going to be the text that I used. And also because it's still to this day, it's so controversial and incendiary. And even though we've had what I like to call a twilight renaissance, like this feeling, it feels like online, I'm a little too online, but online we've had this, like people are a little bit feel freer to talk about their love of twilight and defend it and talk about the ways that when it was torn apart, a lot of that had to do with misogyny Mm. and, you know, tearing down things that young women like, but still to this day, all the early reviews go one way or the other on on midnight. And it's like, yes, I felt so seen. This is for all the twilight girlies, you know, or like, I liked this book, but the twilight, ugh, you know, like turning (sighs) my nose up. Why? And it still exists. It's still such a linchpin of so much like, Heated. Polarity. Polarity. Yes. 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 So yeah. that's my ramble. Where should I send you my therapy check? Yeah. Because that <laughs> was just, my head is just exploding with all of the wisdom you just dropped right there. Oh, wow. The idea of like looking for that in that bad boys are somehow more acceptable and like looking for that in them and like taking that, sucking yeah. that out yeah. from them. So it can transform you. I mean, it's transformative. So it's not that person isn't your savior, but it's going to help you save yourself. Exactly. You want a piece of that to to be transforming you. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, it is is not looking to be saved. It is looking to be be seen, be feared, be respected, be taken seriously. Yeah. Holy cow. Wow. That you just, you just some, you just packaged up a whole lot of my teen years. Thank you. This is me working through my stuff too. Yes. Yeah. I, I love that. It was very fun, too, because I pitched this book to my editor by saying, I'm convinced that like the same religious obsession with transcendence and transformation is at the root of like, you know, people's desire for religion and people's desire for romantic love and obsession with like fandoms and characters. And so I was determined to try in this book to show a clear parallel between Ruth's desire to be transformed and reach some sort of transcendent state. That's like, whether that's out of bottom Springs, whether that's from girl Mm -hmm. to monster, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. And all of the townspeople's desire to transcend their kind of mortal life. And, and I was hoping that that would be a moment of empathy in Mm. the book where we're not painting, you know, all of Ruth's fellow townspeople as just these like people who are so foreign to her because they are religious, but really that everyone, every human being wants the same thing. Mm -hmm. We want to know that there's something more than this daily life, you know, that is waiting Mm -hmm. for us, that we want to know that things are going to get better in the future. And all of these like building block feelings are at the basis of 
just human the human driving. experience yes. the human yes. experience yes yeah, yeah. Um, i i also just want to come back to twilight i mean it does also lead her to something truly terrible happening to her so yep. it's not like you you don't come down on the side of yes this is something you should just revere and copy and Absolutely. you know wish fulfillment this is it you really do give it a, a complex history and journey even for Ruth herself so mm-hmm. yeah well, yeah what is what does it mean to really like kind of blindly follow this idea of you know a man yeah. is gonna provide all these things for you yeah Ruth and finds out the hard way yeah yeah and to blindly follow that feeling and ignore other you know maybe good advice because when you're getting a lot of not good advice too it's easy to just you know throw the baby out with the bathwater. yep I want to come back to Ruth in Midnight. You even said it in your um, introduction of Ruth. And there are several times in the, the novel when you refer to her as a wisp of a girl, which is just such a visceral word. It got me every time. Mm-hmm. And it made me want to talk about hunger. Ooh. Because, yeah, I heard you... Unrelated to this book, I heard you on a podcast promoting a, another book, and it connects to this one and also just kind of blew my mind because I had never heard someone articulate thoughts that I've had since I was young. And you were there like speaking, like I was listening in my headphones. And I'm like, this is coming from the outside and not just from the inside. And what is happening to me I, right now? Can so, I just say, I sent yes. her this because yes. I listened to it. And I thought, this is you, Corinne. Like, did you... You have, I was like, you must listen to this. Like, you have yeah, to, because you that. will be, yeah, so. Yeah. It's and, like you're well, in her and, head. <laughs> right. And, well, and it also was very relevant, because Kate and I had a conversation that maybe we'll get into a little bit, but that made me think this is really relevant, too. You said, and this is you speaking, not in the book. This is <laughs> you. I'm a hungry person. Let's start there. I'm so hungry to write and I'm so ambitious. I want to write 60, 70 books before I die. I want to leave a body of work. I want to leave a legacy. This is what I've always known I wanted to do with my life. And for a lot of reasons, mostly rejection and my brain taking early rejection really seriously, I spent a lot of years not doing the thing I wanted to do most in the world. So now that I have permission in the form of book contracts and possibilities with publishers, that hunger has always lived inside me has just erupted. First of all, can I just say how freaking amazing that is? That sounds like something you wrote and revised a hundred times. And this was just you speaking off the cuff on this podcast. So, uh, but I mean, there's so much there I could relate to the hunger, the ambition. And also for me, early rejection stop how I always knew this was something I wanted to do how early rejection got in my head and made me not do the thing I wanted to do for a long time and now that I have permission Mm -hmm. my hunger has erupted and I will say what Kate and I were talking about it's a little for me right now in this process a little scary Scary. like I feel just like an eruption like if it's of, unfettered what could yeah. happen will yeah. it just like take over and yeah. i don't know consume you maybe <laughs> yes or or ruin things and i really personally to get a little personal and please add to whatever you want to add to or go on that stuff but i 
when I think of what that part of me that was so ambitious when I was younger, I wanted to be a lawyer. I was so gung ho. I was so like, because I thought a lawyer, by the way, is the responsible way to be a writer. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> but I often let that part of me rule my life. And she could go to extremes that were self-destructive. But then I remember that the reason she was self-destructive is because she was following some sanctioned desire. It's okay to be ambitious as a lawyer. It is not okay for me personally. I grew up in circumstances where being an artist was not a thing. It was not a possibility whatsoever. And I was actually following something else and not desire and it was more self-loathing like this is who you really are but you're not allowed to be that so be the respectable version of what you want to be and then so I've when I was self-destructive I was not really that ambitious I was ambitious but also holding myself down and and that was how it came out sideways with self-destruction so I don't know that that's even relevant now but oh, it feels like, a little scary. Yes. And can... it is. I'm just sitting here. It's resonating so deeply with me. And I'm thinking like, oh, yeah, your your lawyering was my academia. Yeah. You know, I was like, oh, I'll mm-hmm. just, you know, not going to write the books. I can't write the books. So I'm just going to get really close to them, study them, you know, like write things mm-hmm. about them. That'll be sanctioned. And that's something people have said that I can do because that early rejection gets in your head. And why is there still... To this day, so much weird stigma around being an artist. I mean, I know the answers are probably that so few people do it. And so there's, you know, or so few people are able to do it in a way that's self-sustaining financially. And so, you know, there's a lot of stigma around like, okay, how are you going to support yourself? But I just remember grappling personally with a lot of shame around Mm. wanting to be a writer and be an artist because I'd grown up you know, as a like very type A perfectionist sort of student who got a lot of validation from winning my like gold medals or gold stars or whatever it is. And then to then turn around and be like, I'm not going to be a doctor, by the way, or a lawyer. I'm thinking I'm going to like be a poet and live in New York City in an apartment (laughs) with a cat, which was the dream for a little while. And that just threw everyone for a loop. And I definitely got the message that that wasn't, you know, quite as exciting or endearing to anyone as my other ideas. And I have this very vivid memory of just being in battle with my own brain Mm. for so many years (laughs) and being the best out there at shaming myself and policing myself. Like no Mm -hmm. one could do that better than I could. And I have this memory of I had come back from a trip and actually, this is, I was staying with my uncle for the, this book is dedicated yeah, to Yeah, Russell. Yes. <laughs> Russell. I was, I was spending a summer with him, gone out to have a weekend with the man who's now my husband. So things mm-hmm. worked out, but it was a very tumultuous sort of weekend. And I had done and said all of these things that made sense to me in the moment. Like I had allowed myself to emote in a way to the man who's now my husband in a way that like felt right at the time, but made me feel really ashamed afterwards. Mm. Like I was very Mm. honest. And I remember Russell picked me up from the airport and in San Francisco and he was taking me back home and I was pouring out all of this to him and my shame and the ways that my brain would betray me 
and, you know, like say things that I then regretted. And why was I full of all of these feelings and emotions that I couldn't control? And did other people live like this? Like, please reassure me, you've got some decades on me. And, and he, I will never forget, he kind of just like turned and put his hand on my hand as he was driving and said, honey, you're an artist. You got to expect to like be overflowing with these Mm. things. Mm -hmm. It's just the way you work. It's a beautiful brain. Wow. Oh, I just got chills. I, that it was like the first person who'd ever called me that and, and had also done in a way where it was both like there was pride and there was also permission to just be, let my brain work the way it was going to work. And I have had to remind myself of that moment over and over again. Mm -hmm. And now I celebrate the excess and I, you know, it's not self-sabotage. I celebrate the hunger. I celebrate Mm -hmm. the ambition and all of those things that were, oh man. You thought were in conflict, but but he said these aren't, you can, they're beautiful. If you see the mess all together. This is, I mean, so the conversation Corinne and I were having, this is so perfect what you're saying, but we were yes. talking about the different parts of ourselves. And I don't know if you ever watched The Flight Attendant. I but, started it, but didn't. Yeah, well, there's no. a Cassie, the main character, There's they do these great scenes with all these different versions of herself in her brain. So mm. Kylie Cuoco is playing herself four different versions of herself in her brain. There's like, you know, the one that's like kind of the drunk one that's tempting her to do things. There's the one that's, there's the childhood version of herself who's like had trauma and is wounded. It's like, you know, the reason you're doing this is because of what happened with dad. Mm -hmm. And like, Mm -hmm. you just, you're in her mind in this conflict. And we were saying that that's what we feel like. They're each personified. Yes. (laughs) They're each personified, but we have these things and you can either let them be in conflict or you can see the value that each one of them brings. They're not bad. They're just all, sometimes they get at it out of hand and one needs to maybe not be so extreme, you know, but we're like, oh my God, we're like Sybil. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know, um, that's so beautiful to me and yeah. so beautifully put. Yeah. They don't need to be in conflict. They yeah. each bring something. Well, we're beautiful. trying. And yeah. as I continued these conversations with myself and I'm like reporting back to Kate, I I realized that neither one could do whatever the one wanted to do yeah. without the other one. Mm-hmm. Like it is those parts of me need each other to get as far as they can. And one only goes so far alone. And so yeah. when they can work that. together. Yeah. Wow. Well, I'm, yeah. I'm going to be like doing a lot of free writing <laughs> after this conversation because now my brain is going a mile a minute with like, well, because you're ideas. the epitome of it. I, we, oh. <laughs> this is what Corinne's going to get to, but with your right, like you are literally writing in different genres and being the different parts of you your duality, which we're going to link to your astrology. So go ahead, Corinne. Yes, definitely. Yeah. So are you, did we get that right? Are you a Gemini? I am, yes. Which you already have the natural duality. Yes. Yes. Where Mm. you're, where, but I wonder if it's easier to embrace with the twins. My, My husband's also a Gemini. Being like one part of yourself, whereas mine is like my Aries sun and my Capricorn moon, and they hate each other so they much. Do. Like one is so structured and disciplined and like long game, and the other is so like childish and immature and just like, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. And so they feel like they're more in conflict, but maybe it's just in my head that it feels that way as opposed to, to yours too. But 
you have really embraced that duality. If nowhere else, then just allowing yourself to write thrillers and rom-coms and to not, I mean, that talk about unlocking that for me was such an unlocking watching you do this because I was thinking, oh no, you're not allowed to do that. Once you have a book deal, you have to go with that book deal. And like, that's the writer that you are. How did you, was there any pushback? How did you embrace that? (laughs) And yeah, yeah, tell me. No, I, um, it's so funny because I, I've always been really, Gemini has always really resonated with me in that idea of like multiple people. Mm -hmm. There's this like F. Scott Fitzgerald quote where he says that writers, you know, are really just like 10 different people in like a trench coat of one person. (laughs) That's not at all the the quote. I just butchered that like beyond repair, but the general idea. And I was like, yeah, that makes sense. Cause more than just two people, I'm definitely like 10. Yeah. Um, And so I have always had like, The way I have always thought about it is I grew up with a military, a Navy dad. We would move every two years and I was an intensely shy kid. And so the way that I made life okay for myself was just the way I thought about it was I put my true self in a like a little heart shaped stone and Mm -hmm. I buried it deep inside and then I would put on personas and Mm -hmm. that was, and I would engage with classmates and make friends and you know, all the different cities and it, no one could hurt real me because, you know, I'm sure this has like some, any therapist listening to this is like, Oh, (laughs) this is actually a problem and not very healthy. (laughs) But for me, it really worked because it was just like a way to be safe, but also engage with people. So I've always felt like I was a chameleon and that was like a strength of mine instead of being you know like a a source of confusion or pain or divisiveness I was like I love this and it made so much natural sense to me to genre hop because I have these different voices in my head as I suspect everyone does but we've just been so conditioned you know to say to think to ourselves exactly what you said Corinne like I've started in this one genre, so now I'm locked in and this is the kind of writer I am. And so when I I started writing my first romantic comedy in the early days of the pandemic and really was doing it simply because I had more time and frankly, to be completely honest, because I didn't know better. Like Mm -hmm. I was a baby writer at that point and Mm -hmm. I was waiting for In My Dreams I Hold a Knife to come out. So I was... I just didn't know better. And I wrote this romantic comedy that I I loved and I sent it to my agent. She was like, whoa, well, this is coming out of left field, you know, like, (laughs) what did you want to do with this? And I was like, we'll see Um, if we can publish it, obviously, (laughs) you know, like I didn't write like fan fiction for our amusement or, and she was like, oh, okay. So that I think because she had never had a client who'd really done that before. Mm -hmm. It was new territory for her. And maybe that gave me leeway. Like, because I was so presumptuous that I could do it. She was like, oh, okay, well, I guess you can do it. I'm your agent. I should sell it. Right, exactly. It was just like, okay. So we, it was at the point, I think, that it went to editors and I was having editor calls with potential editors. And the first thing every editor wanted to know was, 
so you're a thriller writer. I see you have like a thriller coming out. What in the heck is going on in your brain? Like, how do you see this working? Are you going to take a pseudonym? Yeah. And, you know, I just was, I, I am convinced that we're all multi-genre readers. We're mood readers. There's so much yeah. crossover between romance and thrillers and upmarket and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Those, yeah. those old rules about sticking to in your lane, just yeah. I don't think they apply. Um, I, I love that. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't think they should. I think maybe there's some constraints on other people who don't have you clearly have ideas like just erupting to use your word again yeah. from you and maybe other writers don't and and or they don't have the time to like mm-hmm. they, they want to crank out this kind of book but but if you do if you want to if these are your ideas if this is like where you're drawn to why not be able to go you know follow anywhere. the energy yeah, yes. exactly. Follow the energy, follow the inspiration. Yeah. If I wasn't able to disappear into my comedic voice for four to six months writing a, a romantic comedy, I think my thriller voice would be stale and tired mm. and oh, wouldn't, wow. you know, there it, like wow. it creates this freshness where I feel like I'm coming back to each genre after a long time away mm-hmm. with all of these, this fresh energy and these fresh ideas. And I like... I totally get the market concerns. And it is kind of hilarious sometimes to just like peek at some of my reviews for like The Last Housewife, which came out after my romantic comedy. Um, And it's very dark. And some poor reviewer, I just hoodwinked her, I guess. Um, she was like, this was not a romantic comedy. <laughs> like, this was, ah. Yeah. And I was like, like oh, man, read, you got to read like, that didn't, back cover. I know. Did, and didn't yeah. the cover well, clue you in? Yeah. And, and, the, yeah, and the blurb. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's like this fresh energy that keeps things just so interesting for me all the time. Yeah. Like, I would really worry that I would either get bored writing like one genre over and over and over <laughs> I again. Don't, I already told Kate I was I'm sitting down to write my book too because I, I had a two book deal and so I have to do book two and I'm sitting there and I just see like other Corinne like boring yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm so bored yes so her bored. Aries is like where's the fresh star <laughs> yes. but her Capricorn moon is like mm, this, Sit you down, need to do build a brand yeah. and this is very irresponsible <laughs> to go off of what you are even supposed to do yeah. so yeah it's it's very it's very hard it really is mm. I just have to like open a fresh word doc yeah and start to write the other thing and give yeah. myself you know a day to just write like 15 or 20 pages yeah and that would like really free me up and because yes. I just I cannot force myself to do where the energy be where the energy isn't right yes. that's what I was right. gonna ask even yeah. if you yeah. just do a little bit does that sometimes at least reset totally. or okay so I mean you did end up obviously publishing in a whole these yeah. other and ones now I'm but going into a third genre starting in 2025 I was just going to say <laughs> excited about yeah. that look, book looks about amazing that. yeah that i'm it's like you know the the genre no man's land where it's upmarket just contemporary club, fiction contemporary. Yes. yes no one knows what to call it Co- the one thing i refuse for it to be called is women's fiction because i find mm. that so condescending, condescending and ridiculous but yeah it's it's like contemporary fiction i guess and i finished that manuscript a few weeks ago and oh what a I yeah so exciting (laughs) clapping yeah thank you and wait what kind of finished draft 
like finish the some, first draft. Okay, <laughs> so like yeah. the smallest of claps, but still, yeah. no, um, there will it be is many not, revisions. That's actually one of the bigger claps because getting to that first draft, then you have something to work with. That's the hard part. I find drafting so difficult and mm-hmm. editing is like a dream. Yeah. If I could just edit, if only my brain would magic. deliver fully formed manuscripts that I could <laughs> then edit. Man, I'd I really mean, be in wait business. a second. Given yeah. how many you've published yeah. in a short period of time, I think your brain does actually just deliver yeah. fully. <laughs> That's true. I, mean, I promise true. it's pulling teeth over here. Yeah. I it's it so really funny. is. Yeah. Oh, man. Because yeah, you put so in the this, hours. You I, really yes. do. Yeah. Well, that's... I work seven days a week. And that's the one thing that because I'm such a creature of routine and habit, if I let myself take a few days off of work, my brain's like, okay, we don't work anymore. Like yeah. we're, we're like a lady of leisure now. Like this is for now into perpetuity. <laughs> but if I make myself work every day, my brain is like, okay, this is what yeah. we do. Mm-hmm. We, yeah. we work. Makes um, sense. Yeah. I so, love that. Uh, so oh, a whole nother genre coming. I mean, oh, yes. I love I it. Yeah. I am excited about it. It's I'm pit, I'm kind of describing it as Daisy Jones and the yes, Six uh, yes. meets the Gunkle because there's like this kind of a little bit light treatment of really a lot of grief and loss meets like the dead romantics oh i love this yeah which all sounds weird like it's couldn't possibly mesh and so we'll see what my editor has to say maybe it doesn't actually mesh and uh one of those will like get cut but who knows but coming from your brain we have faith we have faith that that you are just so unique with your with your uh, voice and your point of view Mm -hmm. So what are you loving? We always like to finish by asking if there's anything you're obsessed with, books, TVs, podcasts, anything. Oh my God. This is my favorite question because I was just like, I feel like, yeah, this is like what I was put on earth to do is just talk about (laughs) other people's amazing work. So I, as you guys probably have this problem too, is like all the books I read are coming out in 2024 because you're now reading for blurbs. Mm -hmm. Um, So if I can just like, mention some upcoming only if you're lucky by stacy willingham is the last thriller that i finished and Mm. she's the author of flicker in the dark and all the dangerous things and this is her dark academic her first dark academia book which dark academia holds a special place in my heart i love college campus set novels Mm -hmm. so only if you're lucky is out in january and it was a fabulous read i am obsessed i can't wait for everyone to read it and then Island Witch by Amanda Jayatissa. Okay. She, I don't know if you, so Amanda with her debut, My Sweet Girl, which was a thriller, won, I want to say, ah, was it the Edgar, some big prize in the thriller space. And she is just so inventive and, and writes such unique, fresh thrillers. And this new one, Island Witch, which is out in early, I believe early 2024, She's doing like a historical retelling. You know that trend that's really popular of taking like villainized characters from yeah. folklore and history mm-hmm. and kind of telling their side voice. of the story. Yeah. yeah. So she's doing that with a Sri Lankan demoness. Uh, Amanda lives Ooh. is Sri Lankan and lives in Sri Lanka. She's doing that with an, a, a Sri Lankan demoness from folklore, but it's also a murder mystery. And it ties together so brilliantly and is like 
So this is a, I call it a rage book and I Ooh. love women's oh. rage books. Yes. Oh, that is geez. just like my Amen. language. Give it to yeah. me. Yeah. So Genre mashup and, and rage, rage books. Yes. I oh, mean, forget and wait, and, and a witch? Forget it. And I a love witch. It. Yeah, we love <laughs> it. Mm-hmm. Yes. So it's just yeah. got every everything I love, basically. So I can't mm-hmm. recommend that highly enough. Yeah. And I'm weirdly, for me, I love TV, but I'm not watching a ton of TV lately. There's yeah. not much there's out not, there right no. now. Yeah, yeah the strike has put a damper on things. Yes. Yes. Yeah. On release yeah. schedules, on production schedules. It's just, it, it's kind of a mess right now. Yeah. yeah. Which also, thank God for that tentative agreement just reading about in the news yeah yes ashley thank you so much for joining us midnight is the darkest hour is out now get all of her books they are all worth the read just make sure you know which genre you're in so when you open (laughs) it up you are in the mood for a dark thriller or a really fun funny protagonist yeah in in their rom-coms are kind of are kind of women I mean, the stoner women are so yes. um, yeah just, <laughs> I love that. yeah exactly. thank you so much for joining us thank you both i can't tell you what an amazing conversation i could just talk to oh. you both forever so oh, i'll just have to you know get my fix to continuing to listen to you we <laughs> feel the podcast. same we do yes. thank you thank so you. much thank you both